Okay. Today is December 6, 2020. We are reading from the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, page 60, starting with the paragraph, our description of the alcoholic. Reading through page 61, our actor is self-centered-egocentric. Our reader for today is Denise Q, and our speaker is Amy B. So Denise, if you could read for us. Thanks, Kim. My name is Denise. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, and our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. C, that God could and would if he were sought. Being convinced, we were at step three, which is that we decided to turn our will and our life over to God as we understood him. Just what do we mean by that? And just what do we do? The first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. On that basis, we are almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. Most people try to live by self-propulsion. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery and the rest of the players in his own way. If his arrangements would only stay put, if only people would do as he wished, the show would be great. Everybody, including, including himself, would be pleased. Life would be wonderful. In trying to make these arrangements, our actor may sometimes be quite virtuous. He may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. On the other hand, he may be mean, egotistical, selfish and dishonest. But as with most humans, he is more likely to have varied traits. What usually happens? The show doesn't come off very well. He begins to think life doesn't treat him right. He decides to exert himself more. He becomes, on the next occasion, still more demanding or gracious as the case may be. Still, the play does not suit him. Admitting he may be somewhat at fault, he is sure that other people are more to blame. He becomes angry, indignant and self-pitying. What is his basic trouble? Is he not really a self-seeker even when trying to be kind? Is he not a victim of the delusion that he can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if he only manages well? Is it not evident to all the rest of the players that these are the things he wants. And do not his actions make each of them wish to retaliate, snatching all they can get out of the show? Is he not, even in his best moments, a producer of confusion rather than harmony? Our actor is self-centered, egocentric, as people like to call it nowadays. He is like the retired businessman who lolls in the Florida sunshine in the winter, complaining of the sad state of the nation. The minister who sighs over the sins of the 20th century, 
the politicians, sorry, politicians and reformers who are sure all would be utopia if the rest of the world would only behave. The outlaw safecracker who thinks society has wronged him and the alcoholic who has lost all and is locked up. Whatever our protestations, are not most of us concerned with ourselves, our resentments, or our self-pity? Thank you so much, Denise. And now we're gonna have Amy B. from New York speak for approximately 20 minutes. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Kim. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Denise, for that beautiful reading um, of these incredible pages. Thank you, Kim, for this meeting. Thank you, Claire. Thank you, everybody who does service here um, this morning. My name is Amy B. I'm a very grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater from the Mid-Hudson Valley, New York, and um, very, very, very grateful for the opportunity to do service um, at this meeting, um, and especially to share on these pages. Um, I want to start right at the beginning. Our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, and our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. I'm gonna take the first two for a second, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. With regards to our personal adventures before, um, I'm gonna qualify by showing this chart. If you can see it at the top, the chapter says a powerful, uh, powerless, an unmanageable life. And it's a, if you can't see it, it's just a bar graph, a line graph rather. And it's up and down with extremes, each point getting lower and higher, lower than the one before, higher than the one before, lower than the one before that. This is the 25 years of my life before I came into OA. When it begins, I had just crossed into 200 pounds. At the very top, I was over 325. When I came into OA over here, this is where, this is where I, put, I learned to put this down. This is a powerful and unmanageable life. I was an alcoholic in the food and I could not manage, this says could not manage our own lives. Doesn't say I couldn't manage my food. Doesn't say I couldn't manage my eating. Couldn't manage my life. I couldn't manage my life. It was chaos and um, never, never, never settled. That probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. This chart is human power with everything that can possibly be mustered any kind of thing that I could learn about nutrition, any kind of exercise that I could do, any kind of mental trick or deal I could make or bargain or way I could game the system or work the math. I had all, every, every bit of human power that I could muster, I mustered. If human power could have done it, I would have been able to do it. The other thing that this shows um, that we learned in our description of the alcoholic is that I can't stop once I've started. Those, those lines that go up, go straight up. I can't stop. And then it also proves that once I've stopped, I can't stay stopped. 
I get to the bottom and I shoot right back up. So that's how I'm going to qualify. Um, that's how I'm going to say that A and B of this description. Yes. The C part that God could and would if he were sought. First of all, I'm going to, for me, what how I have learned to identify and part of the issue beforehand is I'm going to say she, when I speak of God, my higher power is a feminine, a feminine spirit and energy. Um, so that God would and could, if she were sought, this was the part that I doubted before I came into the rooms, but I actually was able to, to get over rather quickly. I was, I was, I sort of said, what if really at the beginning? And that was all God needed because I had an experience right away. So I, I was like, wow, this is great. I, I bought in. God, God could, God would. She's there. She loves me. She's in my life. I had this feeling that through all of the adventures I had been through that um, I had actually, it was the moments where I had let God in that actually let me start to try and treat myself well. But because I wasn't aware of it, that's of course, I didn't have a higher power. So being convinced we were at step three, which is that we decided to turn our will and our life over to God as we understand God. So I really misunderstood this when I first came into the program. Um, I really misunderstood it. I thought that just acknowledging that there was a God and that God could like do things in my life was how that was enough to make that happen. That my decision was to believe. And I thought that meant turning over my will, the acknowledgement, the awareness, but I still did all of it my way. And that's where, I mean, this reading, I, I, the first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. On that basis, we are almost always in collision with someone, something or somebody, even though our motives are good. And that I knew, I knew I just wanted to help. I knew I just wanted to love people and be loved. And what's wrong with that? And if only people would do as I wished, it would be great. And I just forced my will everywhere. And I thought because my motives are good, I couldn't understand why everything in my life was blowing up. Everything. I used to, <laughs> I used to, I still sometimes will say that it's as if my life was being written by a team of nighttime soap opera, like a table, like a writer's room. Um, and if they had, at some point, somebody would have been like, you can't keep doing things that are so extreme to this character, it's not believable. Everything always happens to her. That's, that's what I, that was the joke that I made, that it wouldn't be believable on a nighttime soap. That is what a mess my life was. Um, I numbed everything with food or I tortured myself with exercise and restriction. Um, my relationships, My relationships were um, painful for me and everybody around me because I, because I was a victim of a delusion that I could wrest satisfaction out of this world if only I managed well. 
I thought I was a victim of the world, but I was really just a victim of the delusion that if I said the right words, if I acted the right way, if I gave enough, and um, it always ended up me in the middle of wreckage. Sometimes I'd be buried under the wreckage. That was hard. Sometimes I'd be standing on top of the wreckage. I'm right. I made you all see I'm right. And I'm just standing in the middle of a, of a war zone. <sighs> I was a victim of the disillusion that I could rest satisfaction if only I managed well. I was even in my best moments, even with my best intentions, a producer of confusion rather than harmony. If any of this resonates, then let me say that in this book, I'm sorry, spoiler alert, there is the solution. My, my life, the people around me, my circumstances have not changed. But I'm no longer a victim of the delusion that I can fix it. My way has not worked. My way has never worked. So, okay, I'm going to skip back in the pages a second. Um, just what do we mean by deciding to will in our, to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood God? I misunderstood that at the beginning. When I first got into program, I got abstinent and I lost weight. Oh, my graph ends up at a high point when I got into OA. I should say that I've been um, in for a little over two and a half years. Um, at this point, the amount of weight that I released is at um, 113 pounds. Um, and I while I'm not all the way where I've been at the lowest, it's when it happens, it happens, it doesn't matter. Um, but the point is that when I came in, I didn't understand the turning the will over. I got abstinent, my food got clean. I went to meetings, I gave service, I talked to people, but um, I didn't really like the book's approach. So I was gonna do it my way. I would do the steps, I'll do them, but I don't, I don't, I don't like the way it's, I'm gonna do it my way. Um, because that's what I do. And it was more loving because I had fellowship and I, my, I had started to build this beautiful concept of a loving, nurturing, um, supportive God who loves me more than anything and only wants my happiness. Um, so it was, I was nicer to myself and I did lose weight, um, but I didn't stop bumping up against life. This, we are almost always in collision with something or somebody. I was still in collision. Um, I was still having trouble with my kids, with friends, just um, small arguments that, that got bigger that they, oh, my parents really, really still tough stuff with my parents. And I didn't, I guess I thought it was better than it used to be. And it was. Um, and then a little over, little over a year ago, I, I moved and I moved to a different area and I had to find a new home meeting. And I walked into a home meeting where there was somebody who was speaking about big book recovery, who exuded this peace. Um, and she read the promises 
And I heard that and I was like, I don't, I don't have any of that. I don't have any of that. I'm abstinent. I've lost weight, but I don't have any of that. And at that point I had lost probably around like 85 or 90 pounds. So a good chunk of it, but it had stopped and slowed for whatever. Um, but it was the promises. I said, I've lost weight, but I don't have any of that. I am still bumping up against life. I am still in collision with somebody, something or somebody all the time. But I didn't like the way it said it in the big book. And I sat with that for a little bit, but I listened. And I listened to other people in that meeting speaking of their own big book recovery and how really it was a textbook. And I was just hearing the perception of the person who wrote it because that person has a different perception than mine. Um, so I was focused on the narrative and not the instructions that that narrative was intending to, to communicate. So um, I got a sponsor, a wonderful sponsor, who's just thoughtful and gentle and always turned me to the book when I would come in complaining. And I just dove in with an enthusiasm because I wanted the promises because I, I, I didn't wanna be in the middle of wreckage anymore, even if the wreckage was smaller. Um, and I started working the steps in this book. Um, and one of the things in step three, <laughs> a step three story that I love, it's not mine, it's shared in the rooms and on pages often, is uh, three frogs are sitting on a log and one of them decides to jump off. How many frogs are on the log? It's still three because all he did was make a decision to jump. He didn't jump. Step three is a decision, a decision to jump. Okay, so what does it mean to jump? I have written in the margin, committed to learn how, how to turn my will and my life over to God by doing steps four through nine, the action steps, the soul surgery, the growth that brings about the promised entire psychic change, and then continuing the work daily in 10, 11, and 12. That's what I am deciding to do. And the reason I'm deciding is because of these next two pages. This, this bit about the actor, and I didn't even touch about that yet, but um, it can't be said better than it's said here, honestly. Um, I, I have tried to present everything to get what I wanted, what I needed, what I thought everybody needed. I have tried to manage every aspect of everything, sometimes lovingly, sometimes forcefully, sometimes intimidating people cruelly, sometimes begging and crying. I would try it all because um, I really deep down believed that I knew, I knew what was best and I could fix it. And, um, you know, obviously I couldn't, the, 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 I, I, I honestly cannot think of a better image than, than standing in the middle of scorched earth, scorched rubble, post apocalyptic ruin. And whether I'm buried under it or I'm perched on top of it, bruised and bloodied, I, it's, 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 it's nothing. It's no way to live. Um, am I not, even in my best moments, 
a producer of confusion rather than harmony. And I have in the margin right next to that in quotes, why do these things keep happening to me? And that's, and that's who I was. And I, it's funny because after working the steps, after recognizing that like all of this, that I don't know the answer, that, that God, God who I, my current level of understanding, and I hope it always continues to grow, is that God is the spirit of divine love and tolerance and unselfishness and honesty. Um, and it's a compass setting. And when I say my one, two, and three prayers, I'm setting my compass for the day towards that divine love and divine unselfishness and divine honesty. And I try to check myself against those and I have to readjust all the time because I'm a human being and I'm fallible. And thank God for the 10th step so that when I am, and I know I'm skipping ahead of the pages, but this, this is a design for living that works in rough, time, rough times. This keeps me out of the war zone. This keeps me out of the out of the rubble. And now in my best moments, uh, well, here's the thing, even my hard moments now are my best moments because when I make a mistake, I have a way to dig into the pain behind it and find a way to be willing to let it go, to give it through speaking with another fellow and connecting to God and readjusting my compass. And then, I mean, and that's 11, that's all 11. And 12, 12, oh my goodness, this is where it is in 12. Carrying the message, sharing the story, sharing the struggles, sharing the story, the really detailed stories of what the wreckage looked like, so that people can understand that miracles happen when we follow this. Um, I'm very grateful for this fellowship, for this book for the people who were patient with me in program, for the people who continue to be, um, for the people who um, call me and trust me with their honest thoughts. We are connected, we are together. We don't have to go into our crazy heads alone. We have a design for living that works in rough times. It's, it's in this book. Just follow it. I don't have to know why. I have opinions, honestly, on things about it. And I can have those opinions, but I set them aside and I just do what it says. And I follow direction and I show up. And when I start thinking of myself, I know that that really never leads me anywhere good. And I try and turn it out. Um, and think of somebody that I can help, even if it's just by sitting next to them and, and saying, you don't have to be alone in your crazy head. Thank you so much for the opportunity to give service this morning. I pass. Thank you so much, Amy. So we'll just continue the recording.